I mean, there's actually several verses, several surahs in the Quran that follow the circular circularity of motion. Remarkable system of eloquence. Because it sort of gives you, gets you to the end, and there's nowhere to go to the, in the end except the beginning again. And there's several like that. It really doesn't talk about tashbih and tanzih except if one wants to integrate because there's nothing in the language there that calls the issue of tashbih and tanzih into, into question. It simply says that alladhi khalaq, khalaq and it stops, that who created. But then after that, it, it comes in and, and, and mentions khalaq al-insan, mentions, mentions the creation of human beings specifically. Hard, one is hard-pressed to, to find a connection between this and Tashbih and Tanzeeb. Or if there is one, I don't see it. Any other questions? Wajdud waqtarib. Waqtarib is a command form. Waqtarib means come close. Okay, close to what? Close to God. But this reminds you of what? It reminds you of the process of, of, of the stages of knowledge. In which God is, is your partner. Remember we started out with saying that who's your partner in the process of, of moving through the stages of knowledge? It's God. So it ends giving you the advice which tells you it's necessary for the stages of knowledge in the first place. Who will become your companion in the, in the, in the process of Iqra. The idea is not to forget as you move through, through the stages of knowledge that Allah al-Akram, it's not that Allah al-Muntaha, that, I mean, in, in many ways you could say that all study leads you to God. And that, or all study should lead you to God. But this particular surah, and in fact we do get that from certain other discourses, but in this particular surah, the command is, by read in by the name, in the name. It is sort of saying, it is like saying, don't do it for your own purposes or, or on your own, but in the name of God. In other words, it's directed. So if we mean by object of study is that all knowledge should somehow lead us to a better understanding of God. If we say this verse, as some Wahhabis have tried to say, is that basically it means that read only about God. The God is the object in that sense. That basically, you know, studying physics or chemistry or whatever uh, is worthless. Don't read Nietzsche, don't read Kant, don't read anything. Only read about God, because this is what the verse tells you that's wrong. I mean, the, the surah clearly doesn't tell you that. But if you mean to say that whatever you read, read in the name of God, that as you're reading your physics, your chemistry, or whatever, don't forget God's role in this process of attainment of knowledge, then yes, there's the object element. Now, as to the companionship, you cannot really separate the, the, the if, that, if that's the sense that you mean, the object from the companion. Because in, in, in one true sense, really isn't, knowledge doesn't really exist beyond or doesn't have an independent existence except God. I mean, in many ways, and we'll get to this later, 
there is a delusion of knowledge separate and apart from God. All, all what we're learning, actually, in many ways, is really learning particles and pieces of what God is, about God. And everything else is really a delusional attempt to find something else. But all the ways lead back to him, to, to, to God. All the ways lead to Rome or whatever that expression is. You move in stages and everything. And you can read the Quran in the name of a degree or in the name of comparative study or in the name of whatever. And, and in other words, God does not accompany you through the Quran. Now, you could still move in stages, but it, it's not going, it, you will ultimately end up with the arrogance and all of that. But that in reading the Quran with God accompanying you, uh, you will, of course, move in stages. And that ultimately God must accompany you. So it implies, it, it goes, I mean, actually, first of all, it really applies to the Quran before anything else. Because when, when, when the first command comes, read, and then the revelation starts, if this is in fact, and even if it's not the first revelation, but one of the first, it is consistent with the whole discourse that is being said. One very interesting point is, as you know, the Islamic civilization moves from a, an oral culture, oral culture that basically emphasizes oral transmissions and poetry, and one that doesn't really write anything and writes or writes very little. Very quickly to one that writes and produced and, you know, as you can see, tons and tons of volumes of written material to, to, to a written culture, from an oral to written. The other thing is, is we also know that it moves from, I don't know, the Arabs has exi have existed since thousands of years uh, in several Arab tribes with no production in terms of knowledge or sciences to a civilization that explodes in the fields of knowledge. Now, what is fascinating is the centrality of Iqra in the, cult, in, the, in the cultural discourses that come before that explosion in knowledge or in the, in, the, in the production of knowledge. In other words, the, more, the amount of times that this, the surah is, it decorates the walls of classrooms or universities in the Islamic world. The amount of times that the surah decorates the covers of books or the pages of books. The amount of time that a jurist responds to criticism that he's traveling to China or traveling to India or whatever, and he says, well, you know, Iqra. Obviously, this verse entered into the social discourses and permeated them and permeated art and permeated interactions, social interactions and permeated discourses to such an extent. And to this very day, when one feels exhausted in studying, often one seeks comfort by reading Iqra in prayer. And then one feels, ah, you know, sort of relieved as if it. I mean, I don't know, at least that's my experience, is that, uh, you know, one, and my experience of people that I've observed, friends and so on, is that when the hours get long and you, you panic more and more about how difficult the studies are, you, you read Iqra and it gives you a certain element of comfort. Obviously, there's something in the surah 
that captured the popular imagination of Muslims throughout, in the Quran and beyond. I mean, the whole debate about Abu Jahl or not Abu Jahl, whether the occasion for revelation is Abu Jahl or not, is really a debate about exactly, partly exactly that. Because if the Abu Jahl reports are authentic, then it was understood by the Sahaba basically as a refutation by God against Abu Jahl. It's sort of putting Abu Jahl in his place. And then read basically means read the Quran. And then qalam means write down the Quran. And so it's very simple. I mean, they, they start telling him, okay, well, write the Quran. It's very important to write the Quran, read the Quran. And you, Abu Jahl, you're a big loser. You're going to, you know, you're going to get yours. But the whole debate about Abu Jahl, there are, the, the jurists that have rejected the Abu Jahl, authenticity of Abu Jahl report said that this verse never referred to Abu Jahl in the days of the Prophet. And it was understood, it's exactly like the, the Prophet's uh, hadith, which Al-Albani said is not authentic. Seek knowledge, except, even if it's in China. It's sort of like a creating an, a, a feeling of the necessity of seeking knowledge. And several jurists pointed out that after the Prophet, shortly after the Prophet dies, there is this obsession, when and then the Arabs confront the, the Byzantine civilization and the Persian civilization, there is this obsession with learning what they have. And in fact, if you look at it, only 150 years after the death of the Prophet, they're already reading, translating, and preserving the Greek tradition. It's not a very long time. I mean, for you to get to that point where you're actually moving beyond preserving your own tradition, the tradition of the Arabs and the tradition of the Persians, and the tradition of, of these, these tribes, of, you're even going to places like the Greek tradition in Greece, and you're translating and preserving it. And so several, like, I mean, Elijah Ghazali for one, Ibn Rushd for one, Zamakhshari another, have all pointed out to that there must have been the seeds of an obsession planted during the times of the companions, which moved to the Tabi'een, which infected everyone else. Because you could not have had this type. And they raised the question, why would the Tabi'een, I mean, why would even the companions, have gone and sought to learn what the Persians had to offer, which we know they did, and what the Byzantines had to offer, if it wasn't for this session to seek knowledge, because they could have very well done as many civilizations have done and say, well, what we know is good enough. And insisted upon Arabizing any conquered society by force. And in fact, historically, that is often what happened during this time. I mean, the Romans would occupy an area and they would attempt to Romanize it. It's Roman institutions, and Roman traditions, Roman systems of discourse. But yet, this is not what the, this is not what the Arabs did. And sort of, in fact, there is sort of this willingness on their part to abandon their Arab culture in favor of the conquered cultures. How could that be with the Bedouin Arabs who were known with their chauvinism for their own traditions? I mean, long before, before Islam, the Byzantines and the Persians have attempted to infiltrate Arabia and even influence Mecca or Ta'if. With, 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 or even Yemen have attempted to influence the, the Arabs of the heartland 
with Yemeni culture or Byzantine culture or Persian culture to no avail. And that's why Christianity and Judaism did not spread in Arabia. Arabs were chauvinistic in, in, in their adherence to Arab tradition and Arab beliefs. But yet suddenly after Islam comes and they are more than willing to throw it all out the window and start adopting what they resisted for centuries. Persian and Byzantine and anything they can learn. And several, as I said, Ibn Rushd al-Zamakhshari and so on, and Ghazali himself, and said, this is remarkable. And this could not have been if it hadn't been for the fact that the Quran created an obsession with learning. As long as it go, as long as it filters into serving Allah. And that's why they, they would read the manual on administration by the Byzantines, and then suddenly it becomes Islamized. So it starts, you know, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, its Byzantine origins become very elusive to you. No, because I'm talking about the origin of the word. خَلْقَ الْإِنسَانَ مِنْ عَلَقَ عَلَقَ means a clot of blood. But the, the reason it was called عَلَقَ, the reason a clot of blood was called عَلَقَ, it, it means that something that clings. It means it's because عَلَقَ means to, to cling to something. Or مِلْعَقَ, right, spoon, clings to it. The the problem you run into is the other verses that talk about human beings being created from nutfa, min nutfa, and alaqa. So in other words, it, it talks about stages of creation. And this, you know, the whole, uh, uh, the, the, the modern Muslims are very fond of talking about these stages, of the, 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 the embryonic stages of creation because of that. In other words, the Quran often refers to the stages of creation in a specific sense as nutfa, alaqa, mudgha, and so on and so forth. That is, for the sake of consistency, we then understood that it's talking about physiological stages of creation. Because nutfa means a particle, alaqa means it becomes a clot, and then mudgha, semi-formed, being and, and then it goes on after that to the to the subsequent stages. These verses that use words that could have one meaning that could be very specific to the context, but yet you could flip it and then they have very general meaning. And I want to raise the issue: Is it possible that God actually composed the Quran with? Knowing fully well that what meaning it has depends on the historical stage. And that's something we'll see particularly in verses that have to do with law. That, like, in you see in the could mean something very specific. Or something far more general than, than that. And is it possible that Allah used the expressions that could mean something quite specific to the people at the time and something far more general to the people who come in subsequent ages. The reason I deferred it is that this could be a good example. I mean, it's possible that this, it's possible that this verse was, was revealed in response to Abu Jahl. But I would say then if that's the case, then it must have been that the first half was revealed first and then the, the, the rest later. 
and that was and God intended it to have a more general meaning later, and consequently it's phrased the way it's phrased, and that maybe the contemporaries of the Prophet understood it as a, the second half, as a response to Abu Jahl, while we are free to understand it as something beyond simply a response to Abu Jahl. But that raises very intricate methodological questions. And in, in the whole issue of language as a living being. And does Quran adopt the methodological stance point that language is a living being? Knowing that language can develop in meaning and become from one thing to another. Reports is that they were being recorded in Medina already. In other words, parts of the Quran were being written down by scribes and put, according to reports, under the Prophet's bed. Now, they, these are very interesting reports because also reports say that the Prophet didn't have a bed. So then there are other reports that they were being kept by Aisha and by others and so on. Uh, but the, the most offensive of these reports is the goat report. That they were being kept under the Prophet's bed and then a goat walked in and started eating the, eating them. I mean, well, for one, the Prophet, the altar report said the Prophet didn't have a bed. And very few people had. I mean, we, archaeological evidence hasn't revealed any beds at that time in, in, in Medina or Mecca. Anyway, but it seems from evidence that in fact they were being recorded by scribes. And it seems, in fact, that they were collected, gathered after that, and checked against the memorization of people. The real find is that we have found parchments that we can date generally to the pre-Uthman Quran. We have, we have located little torn parchments, mostly things like goat skin and uh, palm tree bark. One of them is at Princeton. Yeah, the one in the at Princeton is on camel bone. The shoulder blade of a camel. Was it Garnet? I don't remember exactly, but he was he was a, he didn't read a word of Arabic. But he was obsessed with Arab and Muslim society. He was obsessed. He was very rich and he would travel to Egypt and Jordan and Syria and buy all this old stuff for pennies. I mean the, the his diaries say that he would buy tons of manuscripts for just nothing. And he would ship it back to his home at Princeton. And then when he died, he, in his will, gave it all to Princeton. And so he, from him came 8,000 manuscripts. And he was just obsessed. He didn't read the word of Arabic. It's amazing. But he, he, anything that he could sniff as old, really old, he would buy. And it's, he was Jewish. It's really interesting, I mean, this, this sort of obsession. His wife actually was, a, no, his wife was the one that gave it to Princeton, not him. He left it to his wife. And his wife didn't share the obsession. It's like, okay, what am I going to do with all of this? So she gave it to Princeton. Camel bones and old dusty manuscripts. And he had all the other stuff. Parts of the Quran also written on skin and... and uh, uh, one of them on a piece of wood that's cracking. I mean, she must have thought it's basically dirt. A lot of stuff like that. I mean, even till now, till this very day, places like Princeton, all the old Oxford and Cambridge, Harvard, they have 
a visitor. There, they have a Jordanian, and there's one Jordanian fellow, and there's one Egyptian fellow, and there's one Iranian fellow. They come once every five to eight weeks. And they always have a suitcase, and they open it. And they're the latest manuscripts that they got from the Muslim world. And they, they show it to the uh, person, uh, Weinberger, who then consults with Mudarasi about which manuscripts Princeton will buy. And it's amazing. I mean, they, they, one, one of these fellows brought in a manuscript that Princeton paid a million dollars for. Most manuscripts go around 600 to $4,000. And what decides the price is how rare it is, whether there are other copies in the world, the carbon dated immediately. It was a Persian manuscript. It was the, the very famous one, Shah, Shah Nama. Like the original one or something like that, yeah. Because I remember they brought it up to the library in an armed car, and there were like armed guards that went and led it through the, the, the library and the vault and so on. But most manuscripts, Islamic, Arabic manuscripts, on, and Islamic manuscripts on, they go from 600 to $4,000. And a lot of times, but it's amazing. I mean, they literally come in and just open their, their suitcase and they're all times, okay, look at this one, look at this one, look at this one. 